Good morning, everyone. Thank you all so much for being here, um, for turning the page, building, uh, breaking barriers and building power. Um, my name is Adri Rosenbert. I am the assistant director on the Movement Issue and Charitable Organizations team at ActBlue. And I'm so hyped to be here with all of you. So thank you for joining us. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this panel, this conversation um, with Jess Pires Jankosi and Honey Mahogany. Um, so thank you all for joining us, please. Get excited, prepare your questions now. Um, it's gonna be a good panel, a really good conversation. Um, and just so y'all know, a little bit of housekeeping to get started. We're gonna have a conversation for a little bit. I'm gonna chat with the two of them, pick their brains a bit, um, and then we'll open up the floor for y'all to be able to ask your questions. Um, and we'll keep it casual, we'll keep it moving. Um, and so for the two of you, I'd love before we kind of dive in, um, if both of y'all could just intro yourselves, tell me a little bit about who you are. Sounds good. Jess, I'll start with you. Hey everyone, my name is Jess Pires Jankozy. I use they and them pronouns and I am the Dallas Outreach and Organizing Manager with Avow Texas. Um, so we do unapologetic abortion advocacy work in Texas. We're a statewide organization. Um, a little bit, do, should I do a little personal? Yeah, I would love okay, that. Okay, cool. Um, I'm a cancer. Um, okay. I love feelings, uh, <laughs> which is probably why I'm a community organizer. Um, and I love, um, I'm learning about herbalism. I have a background in uh, abortion doula work and pleasure education. So kind of trying to think about um, the body is a site of liberation and, and how we can do that through multiple means. Um, and I also love fantasy fiction. So if you have any book recs, hit me up after this panel. I love that. Um, also shout out to that like neon uh, French manicure that you have, because it is kind of thing. incredible. <laughs> right? Can we get a shout out yeah, for that? Some to. cheers, some clapping. see the nails, but very fancy. Um, I am Honey Mahogany. Um, so a little bit about me. I come from San Francisco. It's the town I was born and raised in. Um, I'm currently chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. Um, that, it, for me, was a big deal because I ended up becoming the first black chair of the city's history, but also the first trans chair of any Democratic Party nationwide. Yes. Um, I am yes. a founder of the Transgender District in San Francisco, um, helped to write and establish cultural districts in San Francisco and across the state of California. California. Um, I'm also a co-owner of the Stud Bar in San Francisco. We are a cooperatively owned queer venue, um, the first of its kind in the nation. Um, we did get shut down by the pandemic, but a little sneak peek, we are looking at a location and working on it, and hopefully we'll be reopening in the next year or so. So stay tuned. Um, and then what else do I do? Um, currently, oh, I just ran a campaign for District 6 supervisor in San Francisco. Um, we got really, really close to winning, but didn't quite make it. Um, but, you know, there will be, um, there's more to come for sure. Uh, lastly, I'm um, one of the original queens of Drag Queen Story Hour. Um, and we were able to do Drag Queen Story Hour actually at Cheer Up Charlie's here um, at South by Southwest. And that was really fun. There was some protesting, but we had some amazing heroes out front <laughs> keeping them at bay. Um, and it was just so beautiful seeing all the kids there dancing joyously to, you know, Madonna. Um, yes. afterwards, it was really a beautiful sight. So I'm really excited to be here and really pumped for the conversation. 
Thanks, y'all. Yeah, I saw some great outfits going into Drag Story Hour yesterday. Um, these kids were really turning looks, so. Um, but yeah, thank y'all so much. Uh, I want to get the conversation started with the two of you. You know, we're talking, this whole panel is all about building power and, and breaking down barriers. And so I want to start us off um, and hear from both of y'all. You know, each of you have worked on building and expanding powers within various communities. You know, you just introed and talked a little bit about the work that y'all do. Um, so can you both kind of speak to your journey to this work, how you ended up here, um, and what was sort of the like the catalyst or the motivating factor for y'all. Um, Jess, I'll start with okay. you. Yeah. Um, so I started organizing around seven years ago on my college campus. Um, I got really involved with the Women in LGBT Center. Um, and the first event that I led was a Take Back the Night event against sexual assault on campus. Um, and, and that for me was a huge catalyst because it helped me process some of my own experiences and also recognize how prevalent um, sexual assault is on college campuses, how many of my friends and peers had experienced um, similar things. And, and just like seeing the prevalence of gender-based violence in such a microcosm was like, damn, if it's like this here on campus, um, I just know shit is worse out there in the real world. So um, yeah, that was a that was a huge catalyst for me. And then I went on to do um, sex education events on campus. Um, I started this project called the Period Project at SMU to get free menstrual products on campus. Um, still don't know if SMU administration has done that. So uh, you know, SMU work on yourself. Um, and but yeah, kind of thinking about the different ways that we are and are not able to exercise autonomy over our own bodies and really be actors in our own lives uh, is what brought me to abortion advocacy work. And so when I first started with Avow, we mostly were focusing on political and electoral work. So my work as an organizer, originally I was under the political director. We, we hosted all about abortion candidate forums to try and get folks in um, Dallas and Houston candidates talking about abortion. Um, and did a lot of work at the ledge, especially in that, that 2021 ledge session where SB8 was passed, which was the, um, the bounty hunter law passed here in Texas, where essentially um, it gave anyone in the country license to sue someone who had helped or was suspected of helping someone access an abortion in Texas. Um, and honestly, burnt out, burnt out super hard. Our entire staff did. Um, and that, I think, was a huge wake-up call, both for myself and Avow as an organization, to realize that, um, at least here in Texas, they want us to waste our resources fighting them at the ledge. They know that they essentially have the power to bulldoze any abortion-forward um, legislation that we put forward, and that's because of a decades-long gerrymandering campaign and suppression of voter rights. Um, and, you know, as, as Texas, quite frankly, descends further and further into fascism, um, into a government strongly controlled by a very vocal minority um, that 
consistently uses race baiting um, and kind of is creating this image of what a good citizen looks like and a bad citizen looks like. Um, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that liberation is not going to come for us at the political level. Liberation is going to come at the community level. Um, and so a big part of the transformation of our work is, is measuring our successes really from short-term wins to thinking about how can we long-term deeply engage in communities? Um, how can we engage in mutual aid, getting people access to the resources that they need regardless of legal status? Um, we know that Roe was always the floor and never the ceiling, um, even when abortion was legal in the United States, so many people did not have access to that essential care. Um, so really, the overturning of Roe kind of is an opportunity to see how can we protect abortion further with something new? Um, and regardless of legality, how can we build systems of support that actually get us access to the resources that we need, knowing that our government is not going to be doing that work. Um, so I think, you know, to summarize all of that, my evolution really has been from um, a focus on political acti activism and advocacy to recognizing that care comes at the community level and liberation and liberatory work also comes at the community level. Um, and another thing that just came into my head is the fact that, uh, you know, nonprofits can be great. Once again, they're not a vehicle for liberation. Um, you know, the IRS created nonprofits as a tax status in order to stifle movements and movement building. Um, you know, in order to qualify for the tax credits that you get by identifying as a nonprofit, you're not allowed to break the law. You're not allowed to engage in civil disobedience. And so even nonprofits have to follow these unjust laws. Um, and we're competing for scarce resources. So, you know, we do the best that we can working within a nonprofit structure, work, being a political advocacy organization in Texas, while also also investing firmly in community and recognizing that um, a lot of our work has to happen at the community level. Awesome. Okay, you really went to church with that one. Yeah, no, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. Yeah, thank that was a great, well-rounded answer. I mean, I, I feel like I've learned so much from you just in that like five minutes. I'm, I'm like, yes, that is so true. Non the nonprofit industrial complex. Now we're trapped in it. Um, and also um, a little bit about me because I'm also, I have work deep, I've done deep nonprofit work and now have tran like transitioned into political work. So I... Um, I feel like I've always really been grounded in social justice work, partially because I think as the like the child of refugees, my parents were political refugees and asylees from Ethiopia. Um, I was born and raised here, but you know, obviously they were not. Um, so that having that immigrant story, um, being othered, um, growing up queer and trans, even in San Francisco, I think. Um, was an experience that pushed me towards seeking out justice. Um, and also like something that I feel like we don't talk about a lot of as queer people is also how I think my religious background also contributed to that. So I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school K through 12. And while I had a lot of disagreements with the Catholic church on many, many things and still do to this day, um, the part that I think that I clung to so strongly, maybe because of those disagreements, was the part about being of service to others and um, being a person for others. You know, I actually went to a Jesuit high school, which was pretty progressive. We even had like a, a queer group on campus um, that the archdiocese later shut down and then the school reopened again under a different name. Um, all that to say that they really, I think, helped 
shaped me in getting involved with organizations like Amnesty International while I was in high school, so that when I was in college, I was already used to sort of doing that work. Um, that pushed me to get heavily involved. Um, once I got into college, I like came flying out of the closet and was the, um, you know, the resident advisor for the LGBT dorm, um, was working in the LGBT community center, was on the, you know, GLBTA, and then was also doing social work with um, uh, uh, disenfranchised um, youth in the community. Um, I went to undergrad at USC, which is a very, very wealthy um, community and very expensive school, but it's placed, it was at that time, downtown LA was um, a very poor community, right? Um, and so we had this magnet school on campus where a lot of the school, well, a lot of the children would go to and um, we as students would work with them um, to help them it was literally called USC Readers Plus, where we helped them you know, improve their reading skills, but actually what it was, was counseling. I spent a lot of my time counseling a lot of those kids, um, and it was really heartbreaking work, but it pushed me to want to become a social worker. So I ended up getting my master's in social work, working um, first as an outreach counselor for homeless and at-risk youth, and then um, becoming a programs director. And throughout my journey as a social worker, one thing that I realized was, wow, as a frontline worker, I felt like I had so little power. Yes, it was really rewarding to have that one-on-one -on -one experience of helping get someone off the street and into care, but was it the care that they actually needed? Um, were, was it the services that they needed? Were they able to stay there or, or did they just yeah. end up back out onto the street and start the cycle all over again? Yeah. And so that's why I actually went to get my master's in social work to help you know, shape policy and programs. But once I got my master's and was shaping those policies and programs, I quickly learned how that was shaped by the funding streams that we could apply to. Um, and that in turn is what actually pushed me to get involved in organizing and advocacy work. So. Um, you know, in my founding of the Transgender Cultural District, it was really a part of an effort to save my friends. Um, a lot of my friends were queer, trans, performers, getting artists, getting pushed out of a city that they helped to build but could no longer afford to live in. Um, and I won't get into this too much because then it's going to become a panel on the history of queerness in San Francisco. But there is a long-standing history <laughs> with the trans community in San Francisco and, and especially the Tenderloin neighborhood, um, which is in the heart of downtown, is widely known as the poorest, most troubled part of San Francisco, where you see a lot of those videos on Fox News. But it's also probably the most diverse neighborhood in San Francisco, um, both ethnically, in terms of religion, even in socioeconomic status. Um, um, and there's tons of trans people there. So we created the transgender district in the heart of the Tenderloin around the history of the trans community, the center of the Compton's Cafeteria riots, which happened in 1966, three years before Stonewall, just FYI. Um, we know, we've got to let that West Coast pride creep in whenever we can. Yes. Um, and the goal of it was not just to, you know, preserve the history um, of the space, but really to prevent the displacement of trans people. So we fought really hard for economic and housing justice, the building of affordable housing. We built programs to subsidize rents. Um, we also started an entrepreneurship program where we um, both trained trans people with a business idea in how to develop a business model, create a website, provided them with seed funding and a platform to be able to start their businesses, um, and so, so much more. That work um, 
again, led me to realize that we are still being controlled a lot by what is happening in City Hall. So I became a legislative aide and started working, um, literally working to write laws um, in San Francisco to um, make things more equitable, to um, um, better serve the underserved. Um, and that eventually led me to running for office. So um, I ran for a District 6 supervisor. Uh, District 6 it was an area, was number one, it was the office that I worked for as a legislative aide. It's also the district where I owned a small business, The Stud, um, and, you know, where I have lived and grew up in. So I um, was really, really, really honored to be able to run, even though I didn't win. Um, the organizing work continues. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Um, Y'all are really making me feel like I need to be doing more out here. No, um, no, no. no, but but what I'm hearing from both of y'all is that, like, first of all, your journey was sort of like spurred or sort of the catalyst was not one singular thing, but just like a combination of your lived experiences, like the the ways that you're seeing inequities in the world and realizing that if you're not going to do something about it, then who is and, and being able to take that action Um and the the work that y'all have done has had tremendous impacts. And and I guess when you hear all of that, right, like wrapped up into like a five minute spiel, I think you forget that there's so much work and prep and actual like building that happens to get to that point. And and sort of like, what did that building of your work look like? You know, how do you how do you prepare to do the type of organizing that you're doing? Um, yeah, because I think for a lot of folks, it's sort of like, where do you start? How do you start? Um, yeah, I'd love to to hear both of y'all speak to that. I mean, it's interesting because um, I had this conversation uh, just last week at the Night of Ideas in San Francisco, which is sort of how do like who are your mentors? How did you get started? And specifically within the trans community, it was it, it was sort of hard for many of us to answer because. The fact is that most trans organizations were not trans-led until the last, like, 10 years. And so we haven't really had a lot of people to look up to be like, oh, that's how you do this. How, how you are both a community organizer based in the community and also running an organization, right? Yep. Um, so a lot of that had to do with coalition building, um, building uh, uh, coalitions with allies, um, people who shared your views, um, people who uh, were willing to take on your battles. Um, and then quickly learning how to sort of use the master's tools, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which is how I sort of, you know, eventually ended up getting into politics, even though, like, personally, I don't really love politics, but I see it as a means to an end um, and a way of being of service to my community yeah. um, because it is incredibly powerful. And yet we know that the system is flawed um, and we have to find ways to both work around it and also work within it to create change. Yeah, because also if we're not at the table, nobody's representing us, nobody's speaking on our behalf in there, so. Then we're, for, we're being eaten for lunch. Yes, yeah. we sure yeah. are. Yeah. yeah, I think um, to continue on my IRS rant, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the way that nonprofits are structured means that people who are leading nonprofits have to be able to speak funder language and have to, like, you know, that's why you have so many nonprofits who are led by 
white cisgendered people, regardless of the communities that they're actually serving, because those are the people who are able to communicate best with funders and who are able to speak this language of like, um, you know, short-term goals, we're dealing in numbers, et cetera, when in reality, um, so much community work doesn't happen on a numbers basis, right? It happens in empathetic conversations. It happens in spaces that are created for people to be themselves um, and to actually live into their power. Um, so yeah, I'll probably bring up more IRS ranting later. Um, but yeah, I think too what, honey, you said about working within the system and working outside of the system, I think a, a big piece of um, when you're starting out in advocacy is thinking about like, where do you want to plug in? Um, I don't think it's an either or question. I think it, it's a both and for sure. Um, but the, the roles are different. The work is different. So kind of figuring out, okay, do I want to work within the political system um, to try and actually use the money and resources that we have for good, right? Because when I think about Texas, we have so much money and resources that could be used for good. Um, or do you want to work outside of the system doing mutual aid or community care work? Um, I think another huge piece of advice I have is, um, especially after SBA, the basically total abortion ban, near total abortion ban here in Texas passed in 2021 and then Roe falling in 2022. Um, we had tons of people um, flooding our website and our lines. And I think the same was true for abortion funds here in Texas, wanting to volunteer, which is awesome, right? Like we, we want people here. We need people in this movement. And also before, even before you Google abortion fund near me, volunteering near me, the work has to start internally with yourself. And so that means interrogating your own identities, interrogating um, potentially your, your whiteness, your wealth, um, your immigration status, understanding what does gender mean? Where do I fall along the gender spectrum? Um, because especially the more privilege that you have, the more responsibility you have to interrogate those identities and understand them because otherwise you're going to come to movement spaces and you're potentially going to be harming the very people um, who you are in theory wanting to do work for. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you, when you see a cause, um, chances are there's someone already doing that work throw them a couple coins, like give them money okay. to do that work. Um, and if you yourself want to get involved in the movement, do some self-education first. Make sure that you're the right person to be doing this work um, and that you truly can, um, yeah, leverage your, leverage your privilege for good, y'all. And, you know, the more lived identities you have, understand that like that, that responsibility is not the same. If you have lived experience with the, the issues that you're in, interested in getting involved in that itself is the homework <laughs> that itself like you you have done the work um so just kind of like having an understanding of yourself is an important part of doing movement work i think i i will say i appreciate you saying the the whole piece around like first of all like examining all of your own privileges yeah. all of the things that you carry and also that like there are people who are doing this work most likely so instead of reinventing the wheel yeah yes support their work volunteer yeah. throw coins at yeah. them i think when you were talking about you know seeing people coming in droves to your website looking mm -hmm. for ways to volunteer i think we saw that 
at Act Blue in a yeah. very similar way for the ways that people turned out in like en masse yeah. to be able to give to different like abortion funds, yeah. um, organizations that are doing reproductive justice work. Yeah. We saw the same thing when the I want to say it was in 2021 at the beginning when we saw like a slew of anti-trans bills yeah. and we are still seeing those yeah. coming in in huge waves across the country. Yeah. And for folks who are looking to get involved instead of like trying to to build something new which mm-hmm. also I want I don't want to discourage building yeah. because that is also beautiful yeah. and there are already folks who are prepared who have done the work who know how to like respond to these moments yeah. and we should be supporting that yeah. and doing that in a grassroots way also makes it so you don't have to talk to the funder in the room yeah. and like bend to right their whims and the ways that they want to run your organization. And instead you have people who care about the issues, who support the work, who want to be there and and get to help you all propel that. Totally. And I'm like thinking about mutual aid work. Say you want to get involved in abortion advocacy. That doesn't have to mean volunteering with an abortion fund or volunteering with an organization like Avow. It could mean, okay, I'm going to get educated about abortion access in my neighborhood. That way I know if my friends or my neighbors need this info, they know I'm a safe person to turn to. Um, advocacy can happen at the individual and community level like that. Um, and it should happen there too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I actually really loved what you had to say about privilege. Cause I also talk a lot about privilege in the work that I do and how, you know, many of us have some sort of privilege that we carry. We have, whether it be a platform or education or access to spaces or people. And so being able to utilize that to do good, I think is a really, really great way to give back and be a part of a movement. So um, whether, um, like you were saying, you don't have to necessarily directly work at a nonprofit, but you can throw fundraising parties for that nonprofit, right? Absolutely. Um, with, with, you know, if you have access to people with money, that is a privilege that you can be leveraging in order to make the world a better place. So, um, I, I 100% agree. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Look at the ways in which you already are strong and have a platform or a presence or a privilege and how you can leverage that to push the movement forward. Yeah. I remember, um, I was at a rally with, Pro-Choice Missouri in St. Louis, um, where my mom lives. And Cori Bush was there, and she was like, we need everybody for this campaign. She's like, I don't care if your your best skill is at your shoelace tire. She's like, I want you to come and be the best shoelace tire on this campaign that anybody has ever seen. Like, every every single one of you in this room has your own individual talents and skills that can be utilized in so many creative ways for these movements. Absolutely. I love that. Sorry, I got... Yeah, spicy. I love it. Um, And I kind of want to, like, continue on this thread. I think we're talking a lot um, about, like, the work that that y'all are doing. And I know I mentioned and you mentioned, like, there are bills that are just popping up across this country that are impacting access to abortion care, um, that are impacting, like, the lives of trans folks. And I think for folks who maybe aren't in it as much, it's harder to see the ways in which like there's overlap or there's like connection between the issues, you know, fighting for LGBTQ rights, fighting for trans liberation, fighting for reproductive justice. Um, And so I'm wondering from like y'all's perspectives, your experiences, like where you see that sort of like overlap or like um, shared, shared space between the work that y'all are doing. Um, The Venn diagram of the fight for trans justice 
and queer gender justice and abortion justice is a circle, y'all. It it's, is. It's the same conversation. Um, fundamentally, attacks on abortion, attacks on trans rights um, is all about control and who gets to make decisions around your body and your life. Um, and our movements are stronger when we build solidarity between us and recognize the overlaps that do exist. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, especially within the abortion rights movement, we have so much work to do here. There are so many organizations, politicians, individuals who use gendered language when talking about abortion rights, um, maybe use euphemisms like women's health care, women's right to abortion. Um, and, you know, this is the norm in the media, too. So this is typically the model that most people see. But when we talk about abortion access, when we talk about any form of reproductive health care, it's so important. If you take like one thing away from this presentation this morning, it's please use gender neutral language when you're talking about abortion access. You can say things like people's access to abortion, our access to abortion, um, pregnant people, pregnant Texans, because it is already so hard for trans and gender nonconforming folks to access basic health care. It is that much harder when you talk about abortion care, which is already so stigmatized, um, any form of reproductive health care. And it, it really costs zero dollars to be inclusive. And it's a huge way that you can make health care more accessible for folks. You can make um, people feel more comfortable. Um, being a safe person that they know that they can talk to. So um, there's so much overlap. I mean, thinking about here in Texas, um, someone just filed a bill in Texas that would, basically the, the language of the bill is like, abortion bans still apply to people even if you don't identify as a woman, basically implying that trans and queer people are somehow finding a loophole to abortion bans. Um, so yeah, I mean, these abortion bans and the bans on um, queer kids living their lives and trans people existing in the world, they're, they're the floor. They're the beginning. Um, after this, it's, it's only going to go up from here in terms of bans and restrictions um, that the Texas government is placing on folks. So this struggle is all of our struggles. Um, and, and the overlap between them is, like I said, it's a circle, y'all. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> all oppression is very much linked, right? Yeah. Um, and especially when it comes to bodily autonomy, um, it, it has been used, whether it be with race or gender or whatever it is, it has been a, a source of attack. Um, and <laughs> there have been so many, I think, you know, parallels to um, what's happening today, to what's hap what happened, you know, almost 100 years ago now um, during Nazi Germany. Um, but someone the other day was talking about how, uh, oh, it was Laverne Cox, I think she was on like Morning, Morning Joe, and um, the ways in which there have been rise, uh, there has been a rise in anti-Semitism um, at the same time as we're seeing sort of this, these attacks on bodily autonomy, these attacks on trans healthcare, these attacks on drag queens and drag story hour, um, and people forget because a lot of people don't know their history and that history is being eroded and taking, taken away from us really, that some of the first books that were burned in Nazi Germany were by Magnus Hirschfeld, who was, yes, a Jewish doctor who was queer and who also had a gender clinic. So like when you see, when you see that movie, The Danish Girl, that was the clinic that she was accessing in order to get gender affirming care. So that clinic was burned down. Those books were burned. That was sort of at the very beginning of the Nazi takeover of Germany. So this, 
like history does repeat and if we do not know our history, we are unable to fight back against it and prevent it from happening again, which is why these attacks on children, their access to um, healthcare, but also their access to uh, books, literature, and being banned from being able to talk about LGBT people in schools and these things that make, you know, uh, talk about slavery in schools and the horrors that have happened, you know, during, whether it be during um, Nazi Germany or uh, the civil rights era or um, back to the, uh, uh, slave, the slave era of the United States um, pre the, uh, the, the revolution. If we don't know this history, we're going to repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, like, what I'm hearing from y'all is that, like, we need to be, like, aware of our history and also that, like, we need to sort of, like, build this power together. I think a lot of times when people think about movements, they're thinking about them as, like, pretty siloed. Like, there's yeah. the, like racial justice movement, there's the LGBTQ rights movement, there's the reproductive justice movement, and all of, like you were saying, like, we're a circle. It's, it's yeah. like, our struggles are intertwined, and therefore, like, our movements need to be, like, intertwined. And I think that is a tool in order to, like, keep people oppressed and to keep us out of, like, building power is to keep us siloed. And so I'm sort of, like, wondering, like, thinking about the ways in which, like, we can build power, like, how do we do that? Like, how have y'all been doing that in the work that you're doing, like, within your own communities? Um, and sort of like, yeah, what does that look like? How have you been successful in being able to build power as we are continuing to struggle, yeah. basically? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, such a big question. I know, I know. Light um, work in the morning. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've only been up since 6 a.m. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we're... we're I'm struggling between wanting to answer optimistically and realistically. Um, I we think there's a both. place. Yeah, there's a place for both for sure. Another yes and. Um, I think the reality is we're up against, like I said, here in Texas, a heavily gerrymandered state. Um, we are up against Democrats and progressives who won't even say the word abortion, who are extremely reluctant to talk about abortion, even though abortion is popular in Texas. Consistently, people support some form of abortion access here in Texas. Um, we're up against, um, you know, thinking about nonprofit structures, this like urgency culture that demands you to respond immediately, um, which just leads to burnout. Um, we're up against racism in our movement, thinking about how many reproductive rights organizations are run by white cisgendered women um, who really don't have a lot of lived experience with the struggles that come from abortion bans, which hit black and brown folks, low-income people, um, people in rural areas, folks with disabilities the hardest. Um, so we're up against a lot. Uh, and, and that has, I think, caused us to shift, like I said earlier, our thinking of success to, from this idea of like short-term wins, like, oh, good, we got a bill passed, we got a resolution passed, to thinking about how can we invest deeply into our communities with the aim of long-term change. So I'm thinking about like our, our deep canvassing program that we just hosted or that we just ran last year. Um, the first of its kind, talking about abortion in a really deep and empathetic way here in Texas just literally going door to door talking to people. Um, our political director didn't choose a district where there was a clear win. Instead, we chose a district up in North Dallas that was incredibly diverse and found that 
with a couple years of investment, maybe the district can flip rather than something that can flip right away. Um, and so rather than canvas, you know, thousands of people door to door, we canvassed 350 people at their homes, um, had conversations of upwards of like two hours with some of them. Um, and for a lot of people, I think it was their first time having a completely empathetic, judgment-free conversation around abortion. Um, I went out canvassing one day and in that one single day of canvassing, I talked to someone who had a strongly religious background, who had volunteered at anti-abortion centers, also known as crisis pregnancy centers, um, but felt really conflicted about abortion access. I talked to someone else who, when we first opened the door, um, she ranked herself as a zero out of 10 for supporting abortion access. But the more that we talked, she realized, and we both realized that her values were completely in line with abortion. And so she ended up ranking herself a 10, like at the end of the conversation, you know? So like, that's what happens when you have deep conversations with people um, and they're able to ask questions. Then they go out and maybe they educate their neighbor or their daughter or their friend or whoever. Um, and that's how that grassroots change happens. So um, yeah, thinking about investing people in people deeply through deep canvassing. Um, we host Let's Talk About Abortion trainings where we teach people, how do you talk about abortion with empathy? How do you make it not scary? Um, how do we reassociate the word abortion with love? Um, Anti-abortion extremists use the word abortion four times more than pro-choice advocates and folks who support abortion. And so our LTAAs teach people how can we use the word abortion? How can we teach people that abortion is an act of love? It's an act of community care. It's an act of self-determination. Um, and just say abortion as many times as possible in one sentence, which is something that I have many years of practice in. <laughs> Um, yeah, so basically, like, uh, yeah, how can we invest in people deeply and long term um, to create wins? So it's hard because, you know, once again, with the IRS and these funding structures, um, you know, grants want you to, to write your work down in terms of short term wins. They want numbers. But with this kind of work, it's hard. It's hard to think in numbers. It's like, well... I talked deeply to three people today and maybe now they learn something new. Um, but that really is the kind of change that culture change work that kind of feels like very, um, soft, uh, like it feels like the soft work really actually is the backbone through which we are going to create change because politicians, corporations, funding structures, they are not going to concede an ounce of their power unless public majority opinion changes, unless people are willing to recognize that they deserve an abundance of care and respect and dignity and are willing to fight for that. Um, and I think that desire to fight comes from education and, and honestly from empathy, like yeah. these quote unquote soft skills of empathy um, and like really deep heart work, I think actually really does form the, the backbone of our movement. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it's really humbling, I think, coming from California to hear about how organizing is happening here in Texas, um, because in some ways it is very different. Um, and yet also we see so many parallels um, from what's happening here and across the country. I mean, people, I think, think of San Francisco as this sort of progressive bastion. And yes, in many ways it is. Um, 
and also, you know, the more conservative people in San Francisco, I think, are taking pointers from what, yeah. you know, Republicans are doing and, you know, the way that misinformation is spread and sort of, you know, the use of bots and all these other things to really push a political agenda and message that people are buying into, right? Because it's easy, because... Um, Honestly, it's just the easiest. They don't have to do the deep work of actually finding the root causes of problems, but they can just point the finger and blame the boogeyman. Yep. Um, that being said, um, because we do have, I think, uh, you know, a majority. You know, our state is run by Democrats. Certainly, our city is all Democrats. We don't have any elected Republicans, and the issues are more towards the left. Even though there is a split between like progressives and I guess what I would call liberals. Um, we invest a lot of our energy in organizing across the country. So a lot of our phone banks are for races happening in Wisconsin, races happening in um, Michigan, in Georgia, um, places that um, we see as being potentially swing states or having maybe, if not a, a full swing state, at least in a, in a crucial election that we can help flip from red to blue, specifically in, you know, obviously the House of Representatives or Senate races, because those impacts, you know, the impacts of those elections we see, you know, sitting on our Supreme Court yeah. um, and literally changing our laws. So yeah. the way in which we build power, I think, in San Francisco, um, we spend a lot of our time and focus and energy in sort of bolstering up the rest of the country to fight back against fascism, yeah. to fight back against the rolling back of human rights. Yeah. Um, but that being said, we also have a lot of movement work and deep movement work that still needs to happen in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like when when you mentioned that um, Republicans in San Francisco kind of taking pointers from Texas, because I think something we've seen Democrat. is that, oh, Democrat, oh, okay, 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 pardon me. Conservatives, conservatives, yeah. Um, because I'm like, I think we've seen that what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. Like thinking about SB8 um, or thinking about in Florida the don't say gay bill and how that's now expanded to Texas. These extremist bills don't stay in the states where they originate. Um, and, and so I want to toe the line between being like what happens in Texas does not stay in Texas, so it's important to pay attention. And also, like, don't dismiss Texas or write us off. I think a lot of people, um, like a lot of people, even in our, um, like, our info account, email account, where our general helpline, um, people will email us, like, respond to our emails and be like, why would I even care about Texas? Like, y'all are already lost. And it's like, no, like, believe in Texans. The majority of Texans' beliefs are not in line with the people um, who unfortunately are in office supposedly representing us. But once again, that goes back to voter suppression, that goes back to gerrymandering, um, a vow, and some Texas abortion funds did some polling work last year and found that only 11% of Texans believe in a total ban on abortion. So when our elected officials here in Texas are saying that their abortion bans are popular, no, they're not. Like, that's just yeah. straight up a lie. Um, and so I, I just appreciate that, that idea of, like, solidarity building between states and between... Um, like across the country, because um, we're, we're really, really are all in this together. Texas is not like a forgotten state. Nope. Um, our people are still very much here fighting, um, and we need your help and support, and we need eyes on Texas. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yes. Okay, yeah, we're going to clap for that. We, that deserves all the claps, all the snaps. Um, and I appreciate you saying that. We have a colleague who's from Houston and said the same thing last night, that like, the 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 people who represent Texas do not 
represent the people of Texas. And I think that that's really important. And and I appreciate you saying, like, don't count Texas out and and also support. And I'm, I'm wondering, especially, and I know, honey, you talked a bit about, like, how y'all are doing phone banking, like, across the country, even though you're in San Francisco in a relatively, like, what someone might say is, like, a safe place to be. Um, but I'm wondering, like, how other folks who are looking to support y'all's work, to support the movements that you're trying to build, um, how people can get involved, especially if they're not folks who are in your states, in your cities, um, to support the work. And, and just like, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, well, of course, we have a very sexy website. It has many awesome resources. Um, we have a resource list. Like, if you're like, oh, what are some reputable websites that I can send to my friends if they're interested in um, accessing abortion or talking about abortion? We got that. We got a let's talk about abortion training where we can literally sit down and teach you how to talk about abortion in an empathetic way that centers love and reminds us that we all love people who access abortions. Um, we, uh, oh my gosh, what else? There's so many, like you can sign up for our legislative action team. So when things are going down at the ledge, we can text you and you can help out. Um, and, you know, of course there's always the money option. Like if, if you are in a different state, if you're like, you know, I really don't have the time to volunteer, drop us some coins. Like we, we are out here doing this work. And so the more donations that we get, the better able we're able to do this work. Um, fund abortion funds. Like abortion funds are literally out here making sure people can access abortion um, and literally paying for people's abortion and travel costs. You know, the, the cost of an abortion in Texas used to start out around $400 for accessing medication abortion. Now that number is well up above $1,000 because every single person who needs an abortion um, has to travel out of state. So, you know, that means paying for transportation, missed wages, childcare, um, Folks oftentimes will have to travel with their kids or with their spouses, partners. Um, those numbers add up. And then that's not even including the care itself, the taxi you might need to take from the airport to the clinic. Um, if the state you're in has a waiting period, maybe you got to stay at a hotel. Like, all of those numbers add up. And so if you have money to spare, um, giving that to an abortion fund that's doing work in your area is a huge way that you can help out. Um, and then also, of course, like I said earlier, doing that self, that um, self, uh, interrogation, uh, I was going to say maybe something less aggro than interrogation, but actually at this point, yeah, it really does need to be an interrogation. Yeah. Um, it's, it, learning about yourself, learning about your history, where do your people come from? Um, how have you benefited or not benefited from the legacy of your people? Um, yeah, wow. There's just there's there's so much prioritizing rest in your own activism work so that others can see that as a model and and prioritize it in theirs. Um this this work, uh, I, I read an article recently that doing activism work, doing social justice work is basically like having your heart broken over and over and over again. Um, and that's taxing. It it really does weigh on your heart when you are constantly seeing things like don't say gay or bans on trans kid just living their lives um, or bans on abortion. And, and so that rest part, that going slowly, moving slowly and with intention is not just a recommendation, it's an imperative if you want to survive in this work. And I think survive in this world in general. I mean, I think the best advice I could give is really to just look at 
your own privileges and platforms and how you feel like you can be best of service, right? Um, I am very familiar with the organizations in California that are doing the work, but, and I think that it's important that everyone plug in locally to where they are at. So for example, in the Bay Area, we have the Bay Area uh, uh, Legal uh, Defense Fund. We also have obviously the California uh, ACLU and there are ACLU chapters all across the country. Um, in California, there's also the Women's Foundation. And the reason that those um, foundations and institutes and organizations are important is because they are at the forefront of either working with with the California state legislature to write legislation to put to codify protections for people to have bodily autonomy and access to abortion care, for people to have access to um, gender affirming care, for people to to create a sanctuary state in which people um, who are seeking to get abortion care or who are seeking to get care for their trans children can come and be safe. Um, it's really important that we know what's going on in our home states. So finding ways to which to support that legislation, whether it be calling in to do public comment, writing letters, showing up at protests, forming barrier lines against people, protesting those people and those people who are writing those laws, um, I think is a really powerful way to give back. Um, an organization that is, again, close to my heart and I think also really needs the support and help is Drag Queen Story Hour or Drag Story Hour. So if you go to Drag Story Hour, check them out, give them a donation. Also, they are um, implementing a safety program because unfortunately a lot of the drag story hours do come with protests, sometimes armed protests around children at libraries and other venues. Yeah. And so they are really um, beefing up and implementing a, a security team and core um, based primarily um, with volunteer on volunteer power. So yeah. check them out, find out ways to plug in and uh, uh, yeah, use your privilege to uh, move the movement forward. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to plug also, we have a website called needabortion.org. Um, it's Texas specific, but it has all accurate, up-to-date information about abortion access in Texas, um, clinics in neighboring state, all of our abortion funds here in Texas. You can go to Avow's website and find a link to split a donation between all Texas abortion funds. Um, and actually, Texas abortion funds got some good news to put sprinkle in yeah, a little we good, love news good news for y'all. Um, they got some good news recently that they can resume work funding out of state travel for abortion and that essentially the Texas government has no right um, to, to restrict people from traveling out of state or restrict people from helping folks travel out of state. So that is actually a huge yeah. piece of good news. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that was an awesome win. Um, so uh, that is great. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is like you were saying, there's nothing new under the sun. History always repeats itself. Um, chances are any struggle we're dealing with other people have also experienced that struggle and have created models of care that work. So I think about like thinking about abortion access, for example, um, look to models in Latin America or Mexico um, before abortion was legalized. How were folks getting care there? How did they form mutual aid networks um, to get people access to the care that they needed? Um, I think that is something that can give a lot of hope when times seem dire and, um, and you know, we, we're looking at these abortion bans and we're like, oh my God, how are people going to access care? Well, guess what? Other countries have already and are already dealing with that. Um, so how can you find inspiration in those other movements and other networks? of care. I love that. Thank you all so much. This has been a wonderful conversation and it has just been, I think for me, I, I, you were saying earlier about getting like bogged down by just like all that we're having to experience and navigate. Um, and this, this conversation was 
I think what I needed to, <laughs> to feel a little bit more hopeful and I appreciate all the work that y'all are doing. Um, and I know that we have, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, and so I wanted to open it up for the folks who are out here um, to see if anyone has any questions. We have some time for some Q and A. Um, so feel free, we have someone who will come around with a mic if folks have questions. We don't bite, we're very nice. I see one hand right back there. Thank you, and thank you for this conversation, really very helpful. Um, about the training that you do, how to have empathetic conversations about abortion, is that something that um, you do nationally if it was funded? Oh, I mean, if you want to fund us, hell yeah. Um, so we do that training virtually or in person. Um, there's a, a form on our website. If you go to avowtexas.org, A-V-O-W, um, you can find an area to request it. We do, yeah, we do like trainings with organizations, with groups. I'll talk to friend groups if you've got a couple friends who want to come together and learn about it. Um, yeah, yeah. So we're happy to do anything virtual or in person. And yeah, like I said, if you, if you have funding, um, throw some coins our way, please. Love it. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. Uh, super interested in the trans district and the tenderloin. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that means, what the goals are, and, and what's happening with that. Sure. So, um, gosh, a little less than a decade ago, we um, wrote legislation. Um, this was before I was a legislative aide. This was as a, as a community organizer. And yes, everyone in this room, you can work on legislation and get legislators to carry it. So um, that is a power that and tool that we all have. And I feel like people feel really... Um, like it's a little scary or overwhelming or don't know where to get started, you absolutely can do it. Just, you know, look through legislation, rewrite it, work with your lawyer friends. Um, that's what we did to create the cultural districts. And basically what they are is looking at neighborhoods in the city um, where people of color, queer people have been concentrated and sort of, you know, relegated to in, 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 in effectively ghettos, right? Um, and looking at how we can actually use that as a point of power um, a, a space to organize, uh, preventing displacement, um, ensuring that those businesses that exist there, like, you know, obviously for the queer community, queer bars have been closing all across the country. This has been happening for decades. And so looking at ways in which we can actually provide protections for those businesses and, um, and uh, create a, a neighborhood that has the, uh, the population to support them, right? Um, so we wrote legislation to create them. We established the Transgender Cultural District. It is located in an area um, that was the site of the Compton's Cafeteria Riots, but also literally that place in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, I would argue, is probably the most densely populated um, has the most dense population of trans people probably anywhere in the country. Like, you cannot walk a block without seeing several trans people in the Tenderloin. Um, and so we really wanted to protect that. As San Francisco continues to change and develop, like, we don't see change and development as a bad thing, but when it's pushing out vulnerable communities, communities that have really given uh, so much to build up the city, to create the cultural atmosphere, to make San Francisco what it is today, when those communities get pushed out, 
um, not only are we hurting them, we're hurting the city. And so getting the city to understand that, to invest in anti-displacement measures, while also building more housing and making sure that it's affordable to the communities that currently live there, while also ensuring that they have the opportunity to um, start businesses or even have businesses that cater to them and to their needs. Um, and then going further to provide things like healthcare, um, a financial aid, uh, rental subsidies, all of these things, along with visual cues like flags and uh, celebrations. Um, we do like a riot party every year on the anniversary of the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Um, and also being able to have that historical recognition. So we um, established the Compton's Cafeteria Riot site at Turk and Taylor as a, his as a national historical monument um, and um, have done a lot of work within the city of San Francisco to, for example, have a citywide... Um, uh, universal basic income pilot with the trans community. Um, we also um, established a trans day, a trans history month in San Francisco. So some, that's some of the work that we've done as the uh, transgender district. That's so uh, cool. Thank you. That's no small feat. Yeah. That is yeah, amazing work. Yeah. Any other final thoughts, questions? Right up front. I know it's early. I feel it too. Thank you all for, for being with us for first session of the day. I have not had enough coffee today, I feel like. Me neither. <laughs> Thanks for what has been a really um, illuminating conversation. I have a question about what uh, abortion right community engagement and organizing looks like in communities of color specifically? Like what are some of the different strategies um, or points of engagement that you have to use to reach folks? Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great question. I definitely want to name that because Avow is a reproductive rights organization, um, we, our, our base is mostly white people. It's mostly older white women um, because I think that is that is the group that is most let me see how I want to phrase this. I think communities of color, black and brown communities, have for a long time recognized that even if abortion is protected legally, that is not the same as being able to access abortion. Um, and so I think sometimes uh, we find that white women are the most invested um, in the work that we do specifically because uh, you know, they have faith in legality and because they've seen legality work for them. Um, but for black and brown communities, for queer and trans folks, you know, we've seen that just because abortion is legal doesn't mean you can actually access it. Um, so there's really awesome organizations in Texas doing this work. I'm thinking of the AFIA Center, um, which is an organization um, run by black women for black women. They originally started out um, in HIV and AIDS um, education and, and resources, um, recognizing that black women had some of the highest rates of HIV here in Texas. Um, but now they've, they do so much great work. They have an abortion fund. Um, they just started a birth clinic, I believe, here in Dallas. Or Sorry, we're not in Dallas. We're in Austin, um, where I live in Dallas. Um, and, uh, and so they do a lot of work trying to get people to 
be able to access the material resources that they need to actually access care. So um, I think that means doing work like uh, providing rides, doing work that abortion funds do, where you're like providing rides, providing money, um, helping people set up childcare, things like all of these barriers that stand in the way of folks actually being able to access abortion. Um, so yeah, the, the AFIA Center is doing great work. Frontera Fund does great work in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, uh, but I, I think to your question, it's less of doing this kind of work around legality, which also, like I said, there, it's, it's not one or the other, it's a both and, um, but it's, it's more recognizing there are material conditions that are not being met um, that are preventing folks from accessing the care that they need. Um, and, um, yeah, how can we meet those material conditions? How can we literally just straight up put money into people's hands and be like, use this for what you need it? Yeah, thanks, yeah. Thanks, y'all. Um, if there are no, I see, I don't see any other hands, so I'm gonna close us out here. Um, but I appreciate you all so much. Thank you, Jess, thank you, Honey, for being part of this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing from both of y'all and I'm truly grateful for both of you and the work that you're doing. Um, I'm excited to like see what you continue to do. Um, and then the only other thing I'll say for all of our lovely audience members here uh, is that we will be doing a meet and greet right after this session um, over at our Act Blue booth, which is right over there at booth 535. Um, so please come over, come say hi take some photos, meet the panelists, and then also um, at our booth as well this afternoon at 3 p.m., we are hosting a happy hour. We would love to see y'all there. Come check out the space, come hang out with us, have a beverage if you imbibe. Um, and yeah, we'd love to keep the conversation going. Um, so feel free to check us out. And thank you all so much. I hope everyone enjoys the rest of your South by Southwest. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.